0: This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at uh, cms.mit.edu.
1: I I have a couple of announcements. One is that that, uh, in... uh, two days, Nick, on Thursday, in our usual space, the Bartos Theater, an aspect of the conversation that we're beginning today will continue when another Harvard professor, another Harvard eminent, uh, Robert Darnton, uh, who is a, uh, a professor in the history program there and also the director of the Harvard Libraries, will be at the forum to discuss books and libraries in the digital age. And that's in two days. This uh, next, this coming Thursday at five o'clock in the Bartos Theater, and then in November, two days after the election, the second in our forums on the campaign and the media will be held, and uh, we're expecting that. Uh, 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 forum to be particularly uh, lively, not only because it'll be so close to the election time, but because the folks who will be speaking there are in their different ways experts on the digital campaign. And one of the topics, one of the central topics of that forum will be the role of the Internet and the role of digital technologies in contemporary political campaigns. And uh, those of you who have been following the campaign, I assume it's most of you, will understand immediately that, that there is a very dark side to the way in which the new media is affecting our politics. Many people have said that the, that the uh, extreme partisanship we're seeing in some parts of, in, in, in some aspects of the campaign is a function or at least a partial function of the viral power of the Internet. Uh, and that's one of the, that will be one of the primary topics to be discussed at that forum. That forum will be held on Thursday, November 13th in Bartos Theatre at our usual time from 5 to 7 p.m. Well, it's a very great pleasure for me to have two friends of mine uh, join me in this in this uh, uh, forum. Uh, Diana Henderson, to my far left, is a professor of literature uh, at MIT and the dean for curriculum here, uh, for for curriculum and faculty support at MIT. Uh, she is a noted author. She's written a, a, a book called "Collaborations with the Past: Reshaking, Reshaping Shakespeare Across Time and uh, 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 Across Time and Media." And the second, uh, uh, and, and the second book, "Passion Made Public," the Elizabethan lyric, uh, uh, gender, uh, the Elizabethan lyric, gender, and performance. Uh, she's also the editor of a very interesting series of uh, an, an anthology series called "Alternate Shakespeares." The third, one. Uh, the, the, third, the third, right? The third, the third in that series is edited by Diana. Uh, it's a distinguished and interesting and. Uh, uh, rich series. Uh, she's also served as a dramaturge for professional and collegiate theatrical productions uh, and uh, uh, she's going to join me in, in the first hour in, our, in a conversation we'll be having with Steve Greenblatt and then we'll open, as always, open our, 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 our uh, uh, microphones to general discussion challenges and, and uh, responses. Uh, Steve Greenblatt, to my immediate left, is the Kogan University Professor of the Humanities at Harvard. He was a Yale undergraduate and graduate student, also has an M.Phil from Cambridge as well as a PhD from Yale. And he taught for 28 years at the University of California, Berkeley, where he was one of the founding editors of the influential journal Representations. He uh, moved to Harvard in 1977, uh, uh, and has, uh, in 1997, uh, and has been 1997. I uh, uh, <laughs> we don't know our lives, lives anymore. Anyway. 1997. Uh, and, and uh, he's he he remains at uh, he remains at Harvard. Uh, he's he, he's been recognized as one of the most influential literary scholars of his generation. Uh, and is the author of a number of seminal, very influential books in literary study. I won't list all of them, but I'll mention a couple of titles. Some of you, I'm sure, have read them, or read in them, or read essays from them. Uh, the uh, in 1980, Renaissance Self-Fashioning; 1988, Shakespearean Negotiations; 1990, Learning to Curse; 91, Marvelous Possessions. In the year 2000, he published a strange and interesting book uh, uh, jointly with Catherine Gallagher uh, uh, called Practicing New Historicism. Uh, And it's uh, an interesting problem to read the book and try to discover which chapters are by Greenblatt, which by Gallagher. I actually can tell because the prose of one is much superior to the prose of the other. But uh, Gallagher might not like that uh, statement. Um, and in fact, I know it was a true collaboration, as you can tell from the, from the uh, uh, introduction and from the, and, and from the arguments themselves. In 2001, a prize-winning book, uh, Hamlet in Purgatory, one of many prizes that Stephen has won, Hamlet in Purgatory, and a book he's probably famous or in some circles infamous for, the most popular of his books, uh, n- nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, a biography of Shakespeare, Will in the World. Uh, there, he is also the editor uh, of, of a number of critical anthologies. But his work as an editor may be even more influential in some ways than his own original scholarship, because he has the immense distinction of having succeeded uh, Meyer Abrams, M.H. Abrams, as the general editor of the Norton Anthology of Literature. And he is also the general editor of the Norton Shakespeare. So he, uh, 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 I want to begin with, a, with, with, a, uh, with an anecdote. Uh, and it's a particularly appropriate to discuss anecdotes when, when one talks about Steve Greenblatt because the anecdote and the use of the anecdote is something he's written about and is one of the seminal and in some ways controversial strategies in the practice of the new historicism. But I have often in my career illegitimately boasted that I am the secret father of the new historicism. And the reason for this is that in 1969, when I was a young assistant professor at Yale, the most gifted graduate student there at Yale, just finishing up his PhD, was Stephen Greenblatt. And uh, uh, the greatest uh, uh, accolade that a, that a, a graduate student in the Yale English Department of those days could be offered was the offer of a job at Yale. And, of course, Greenblatt being the most distinguished of his distinguished contemporary graduate students there was offered a job at Yale. And he was, But he was, since he'd also been an undergraduate there as well as a graduate student, he was intelligently ambivalent about whether he should accept this. And, 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 uh, Although he had not actually been a student in my classes, we knew each other, and I, I and and he came to my office one afternoon, and he and he told me, uh, in the, I guess this was in the spring of 1969, and he said to me, you know, Yale's offered me a job, but the uh, University of California, Berkeley's offered me a job, and I, I, what should I do? I'm tempted to, I'm tempted to to leave, but he had the great sense that in those days the Yale English Department was unimaginably well-known, unimaginably dominant. I mean it was, this, it was thought to be the sort of center of the scholarly and literary universe. So for a young scholar to turn down a job at, at Yale would be, it would have been a shocking thing. Much, much, it was a much more distinguished appointment, for example, than a, an appointment as assistant professor at Harvard, for instance. And, uh, and it was doubly difficult for poor Steve because he had been the student of all the great men who populated that department, and he would be rejecting them if he didn't go. And I, who was an outsider, one of the few uh, uh, younger faculty members who had, did not have a, have a Yale degree, uh, I, my degree was from Stanford had no he- and had not been a Yale undergraduate. I had no hesitation in telling Steve, oh, I absolutely think it would be a terrific thing for you to get away from these looming eminences, go out to California, go to Berkeley, it's a wonderful department, you'll thrive there. And behold,
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well that's my anecdote. Uh, I thought we might begin uh, by by uh, talking a little bit, in fact, with Steve about what Yale was like in those days. And uh, in p- one reason for this is that uh, one way to understand the work that Steve has done, and also. The work that others who have followed in the tradition of the so-called new historicism have done is to see it in part as a reaction against the dominant critical paradigm that was associated most of all with the distinguished faculty at Yale at the time. And and uh, I thought we might start our conversation, Steve, by ask by, by by talking a bit about about your memories of that of that time. I mean, I, my ten years at Yale as a young faculty member were probably the intellectually the richest and most valuable experiences of my life, even though during that time I could watch the new criticism and the uh, breaking down uh, and, and, and a new dispensation starting, starting to enter uh, the, the profession and especially beginning to sort of divide the Yale faculty in very strange ways. But when I first went to Yale in 1966, uh, its place in the literary firmament was Unrivaled, and, and it, it, it for something like 25 years or so was understood to be the center of a kind of energetic form of criticism uh, that I thought we might talk a bit about.
3: Sure. Uh, first of all, thank you, uh, both and all of you, uh, for this invitation. I'm very happy to be here. Um, I want to have my own uh, anecdote of indebtedness, not so much for saying go west, young man. But for a different memory I have, or linked memories, first of all, it's interesting that that I think of us uh, as having been friends in, in, back at that time, and that's interesting in itself as a piece of sociology because it meant that you and a handful of other junior faculty members in a high, quite hierarchical department were willing to hang out with graduate students. Right. Uh, that wasn't by any means universally the case. But it's a more particular memory, uh, uh, one that you... Well, almost certainly forgotten, uh, in which you were talking about something you were writing and you were uh, you were struggling with the thought that you were going to end this essay with a repeated phrase, namely, I believe the phrase was not to lie, not to lie. Uh, and now it's odd, I remember it, I can't even remember the subject of the essay any longer, but the, I remember that conversation because, and I, it was quite important to me, Um, because it was about whether one could write uh, in the papers that one wrote because why were you worrying about whether you could repeat the phrase at the end? You were worrying about it because it wasn't uh, straightforward enough, uh, discursively straightforward enough, it was uh, trying to achieve a certain effect, the effect of repeating the same, whatever is involved in the effect of repeating the same phrase. And you're actually quite concerned about it in a somewhat neurotic way, but in the way that we <laughs> are, uh, uh, about whether one could get away with it. Um, and that that is important because for me then and then subsequently too, the idea of thinking of what one does as involving writing as well as the, uh, whatever the scholarly research work, went, uh, aspect of one's work is, has been extremely important to me and more or less continuous. And though I won't say it probably has at least as much to do with my mother as it does with that conversation with you, nonetheless, that conversation with you was important as a, as a way of articulating and releasing the desire to do something... That was a little transgressive uh, in the pathetic, modest ways of the english department uh, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. in the in the research agenda that we were uh, trying to learn how to do and uh, the i was I, I have a quite uh, happy memory uh, of um, at Yale of going down the hall i can 't remember, remember where it was that I was living and buttonholing Uh, someone named David Brown, who's now a curator, I think, of the National Gallery in Washington of Renaissance paintings, and saying, I've written the first sentence of my dissertation. And it was a dissertation on Sir Walter Raleigh, and the first sentence was, Sir Henry Yelverton was no friend to Sir Walter Raleigh. That was my equivalent of not to lie, not to lie, (laughs) because what was thrilling about that to me about the sentence, what I took was taking kind of giddy, narcissistic pleasure in. Not such a great sentence, but that you couldn't tell that it was the first sentence of a dissertation. Right, That's what I loved right, uh, right. about it. And that it could, you don't, didn't know where this was going and what, even what genre uh, you were exploring. And that was part of whatever was percolating uh, in, at that moment. Uh, wasn't maybe necessarily fully realized at that moment, but it was percolating in the atmosphere, especially in the world shared by, by embattled junior faculty members uh, in In what were exciting, but at the same time dead end jobs, and uh, graduate students wondering about their uh, their future, as for Yale itself, my memories are very uh, on the one hand I was there forever i mean as an undergraduate and a graduate student, um, and I have very sweet memories of of uh, a uh, of a remarkable world, especially a world of as you say of a very vital uh, English studies. But I have actually also, it might be worth recording, just in the spirit of that old book, The World We've Lost, um, how odd now, looking back on it, but everything, this will also look odd in, in 40 years or so. I mean, how odd the world was looking back on it. I remember this I've written about. as an under- In my freshman year at Yale, um, Martin Price, who was a very wonderful, my freshman English teacher, a fantastic, uh, fantastically good teacher in a quietly shy, narciss- uh, shy, charismatic way, and then, and, uh, and a wonderful scholar of 18th century uh, English literature, asked me if I could be, would be his bursary student assistant, he was finishing a book, the book, I think it was To the Palace of Wisdom, which is, it remains a wonderful book. Uh, in, the, uh, in the subject. And I was thrilled. He saw I was a kind of geeky, enthusiastic freshman. So I had to go to get uh, – in those days, bursary jobs all went through the financial aid office. So I went to the financial aid officer. Uh, must have been November December of my freshman year. And I said I was applying for a bursary job. And the financial aid officer said, Greenblatt – Greenblatt's a Jewish name, isn't it?" And I said, yes. He said, "Well, frankly, we're sick and tired of the number of Jews who are coming into this office trying to wheedle money out of Yale University." It was 1961. So it's unbelievable, really. 1961—that was still possible um, in uh, at a major university.
1: You know, I—I I, I had thought that we were going to be only celebratory here about Yale, but—but I. Well, but there's <laughs> much
3: to celebrate. I mean, what's interesting? I'm not is, what's interesting is like everything else, <laughs> like us now. I mean, it's a world of weird. Marbling of of wonderful things and weird things. But I have an mm-hmm. I,
1: have a, I have an anecdote like yours. It's even more disturbing in some respects. Young assistant pro- assistant professors at Yale when they first arrived were, were not free at the, in those days to choose their courses. They were assigned the work that they were supposed to do. And I was assigned what was sort of the defining the signature course of the Yale English Department at the time. It was it, it was a course it was a course in in in, clo- in the close reading of, I forgot the total number. It went over a whole semi- a whole year. It's a great I mean, course. It's a course it that called? made me an English what, 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 what major. Was
4: English,
3: it? English 25 what, what or was 125. Its, ti- it's, what it it's is.
1: title was something like Nine Great Poets yeah. or something it was, like It something. remains the best course and, I ever had. And uh, uh, when I, I was assigned this, not having been at Yale in any way, it was very intimidating because one of the central people to teach was Milton and, and Paradise Lost, which I had not. I confess, had a great love for as a graduate student, and sort of skimmed through it, and then I found I had to teach it. And at, I was invited, along with the other new assistant professors, to a reception of, for the literature and history faculties at Yale. In, in, this was in 1966, in the fall. And the chairman of the Department of History came over to me, looked at me, I guess I don't have a Jewish name, but I'm obviously Jewish. and. Uh, he was making that judgment on the basis of my appearance, I guess. And he said to me, "He said to me, um, you should be very. Prou- You're teaching English 25, aren't you?" I said, "Yes." He said, "Oh, they teach a lot of. They teach Milton, Paradise Lost. There, you should be very proud of the uh, of the responsibility your department is." granting you as a, as a non-Christian to teach that material. <laughs> your, your tribe is Jewish, am I right?
3: Uh, yeah. No, I mean, it, it wasn't the only piece of it. I mean, it was, there were multiple pieces of it. A, a very, very distinguished senior professor with whose son I was in the English department, with whose son I was friend, uh, friendly, told me once, I was just at their house, there are many homos, he said, in this university, but we've, we've made a little quiet committee and we're going to try to try to deal with this problem. Or or another quite distinguished English professor, when we were talking about something, of kind of uh, somewhat chummy thing called the Elizabethan Club, where they serve cucumber sandwiches and tea, uh, s- said that they couldn't have women in the Elizabethan Club, somewhat weirdly, because it's called the Elizabethan Club, uh, because, because once a month they go mad. <laughs> and, uh, these were po- things possible to say.
1: In, uh, in, the,
3: in the 1960s. In, yes, in the 1960s. I mean, the, the, the It was, was, as I say, mixed up with fantastically uh, generative and welcoming things, but it's like everything else in life. One looks back at it with astonishment that that within it was, we could reach out and touch it. It was in very recent memory, but it was still uh, entirely possible to share. And I also remember, though, I hope you won't be embarrassed, but in the fly on the wall manner, the way graduate students listen to what junior faculty say to each other. I, imagine, I remember you and I think Chip Long talking and comparing notes about whether you had received a Christmas card from Maynard Mac. And one of you had and one of you had, Maynard Mac being a senior heavy in the department. And so it was like the Kremlin. I mean, that, that who was getting a, the appropriate card and who wasn't was a source for the junior faculty of some anxiety. I mean, yes. the, it is a... a
1: which was one of the reasons I advised Stephen to go to Berkeley. Oh, you hadn't <laughs> got the card. I couldn't remember. Uh, uh, no, it was not. Yeah, I don't remember that. But, uh, but the, the hierarchic nature yeah. of the environment was very remarkable. Yeah, in uh, fact, there was a very sharp distinction between associate and full professors. Yeah. So there was one poor fellow, a wonderful man, who specialized in the teaching of teachers. And the f- great scholars at Yale looked down upon this as something sort of oh, yeah. uh, unimportant. He was kept an associate professor until he retired. Yeah. And which it might a- not be
5: entirely uh, <laughs> changed everywhere. <laughs> no. I, guess
3: I have one other piece of the, so- of the sociology of the time to recall, which is interesting in relation to the current contemporary world or the world of the last, really, a generation and more, which is that back in the day, um, at that point, especially if you came from Yale, you could, you could have a, you wouldn't necessarily be guaranteed a job, but you could have an interview more or less anywhere you wanted. Uh, and I remember we used to make a list up of the places we wanted to be interviewed. It would have been 19, the fall of 1968. And I had, I had been the summer before purely for trivial, for playful reasons, to California for the first time. And had seen Jimi Hendrix playing, burning his guitar in fact, in the panhandle and uh, in San Francisco and smelled the uh, redolent scent of, of marijuana for the first time and so forth and so on. It was 1968. Uh, and so I said, oh, I want to be interviewed by Berkeley. And then uh, <laughs> I, I, I knew I was doing uh, well enough in the program, uh, to, but as I say, you didn't have to be doing very well to get that thing. And, I, and then I heard just accidentally that the Berkeley person had come and gone. I hadn't been, been given an interview. So I talked to the person who was in charge of the placement, um, who was the, the um, only woman in the department, actually, at that time, I believe. Marie Boroff. Marie Boroff, and for a long time, the only woman in the department, a remarkable person, really extraordinary person. And I said, um, I've heard that the Berkeley person had come and gone, and I had asked for an, explicitly for an interview with that, what, what happened? And she said, well, we weren't going to tell you yet, Steve, but Gail is going to offer you... <laughs> A job. <laughs> when well, I said, you know, I was delighted and pleased, but could I have a Berkeley interview anyway? I mean, that, that uh, and she said, a little, little surprised, but said he probably was, the man was probably still in in uh, New York. And if I, she gave me a contact number and I called him and, and then took the train to New York and had an interview. So I was, I mean, that also tells you a lot about the, about
1: the arrogance uh, of, the of the world.
3: Place. I mean, just a sense, I, mean, I not if it's even, I mean, I suppose it's arrogance, but just a sense of, that's the boundaries uh, didn't extend of, of their imagination didn't extend much beyond the border and that's of course modo true of Cambridge, Massachusetts now and so forth and so on I mean these these are very familiar provincialities it was just a quite you know it has its own special self congratulatory provincialism and that was wonderful and and I was very glad you gave me the advice to get the hell out uh, <laughs> But Steve,
1: let's spend a few minutes, though, talking about the sort of the, the intellectual power yeah. of, of, of the, the, the argument about what the new criticism was and how empowering that was in certain well, what, ways. Well,
3: what can be said, I think, at least in my recollection, which of course is no doubt completely distorted, uh, was that when I was there, certainly as an undergraduate, and then massively when I was a graduate student, I was aware, much more sensitively aware of it, new criticism, first of all, was I won't say the only game in town, but the principal game in town, uh, and practiced at a remarkable, with a remarkable degree of intensity and and uh, intelligence. I'll come back to this in a second. But there was a, uh, there may have been much bigger world than I'm aware of. But the only person I was aware of who did something <laughs> called historical scholarship was, I think, someone named Gordon Haight, uh, who was a. Uh, George George, George Eliot Scholar. Yeah, George Eliot Scholar, who seemed to me at the time a kind of uh, uh, someone whom whom life had disappointed and who was uh, not at all uh, a model for any younger, serious, uh, any ambitious, intellectually ambitious person to imitate. He just seemed sour and unhappy and treated with contempt by his colleagues, and so it seemed to me. Um, So there was that that world was completely closed off. Uh, I had come back from Cambridge where I had encountered through Raymond Williams, uh, uh, the British Marxist scholarship of the mid-60s. I was quite excited about it, and that was treated with loathing and contempt uh, by the department. And what there was was this fantastic thing that was represented uh, by um, people like Wimsatt and Brooks, but, or... or William K.
1: Wimsatt, the verbal icon. Cleanth Brooks... The well-wrought urn. I'm just yeah. naming the most famous.
3: It's a fantastic, remarkable, figures. remarkable yeah. figures. And, and Robert my, Penn Warren. Rob, yes, Robert Penn Warren had been my teacher as an undergraduate, and is a, a much more complicated figure than than could be conveyed by simply by that side of his work. But I mean, a set of, re, of really quite powerful people with a new Rene generation Bellick. coming. Rollok well, was, of course, not in the English department, right. but in the orbit in, in the English department coming into my. I mean, when I was an undergraduate, Harold Bloom was my. Uh, teacher, and then i' <laughs> heard that there was this interesting young guy named Jeffrey Hartman in mm-hmm. the department uh, that, that I should get to know. So there were a set of people who represented something else stirring, though it was stirring in, in a complicated con- continuity with new criticism. I mean, Jeffrey Hartman was an interesting pivotal figure because he was interested already at that point in in French phenomenology and things that were happening outside the immediate anglo-american orbit but the principal game was was what had been so powerfully and really brilliantly uh, articulated in in Wellick and Warren and in Wimsatt and uh, in Brooks which was to to scrap uh the the kind of um uh, what in France would have called, been called lansonnisme. I mean, the the a, a, the interest in in constructing a kind of literary hist- a broad literary history, with some gestures, not particularly rigorous, but gestures toward toward a sociological account of of literature, but instead to do a intense aesthetic criticism of uh, works of art understood as uh, uh, as verbal icons or as uh, beautifully wrought objects. Uh, or, as Wimsat put it charmingly, as puddings or machines. Think of them as puddings or machines. If you think of them as puddings or machines, you don't think uh, of of a poem... You're not interested in, in um, the childhood of the cook uh, or of the marital status of the machinist. You're interested in whether the machine works or what the uh, pudding... You might be interested in the ingredients and in what the results are of the pudding. And that was a way of uh, of freeing you from a certain kind of, in their account, a certain kind of time-wasting and very low-level sociology uh, or, God forbid, vulgar materialism in relation to uh, works of art and uh, to understand what their internal making was, usually centered around notions of ambiguity and irony. sometimes on on there were more there were other also philological questions, but centrally it was um, a kind of American appropriation or e- exfoliation of what Emson let's say earlier and seven types of ambiguity had done uh, and it produced fantastic results for a generation It was democratizing because it meant that people who didn 't come from backgrounds that that uh, uh, had either easy access to or kind of national association with this literature could actually feel like
1: could possess it
3: and say something interesting about it? I
1: think that in a way was its incredible attraction to me. A boy was the first one in my family to go to college, ignorant, ignorant as a rock. And to be told by these scholars that if I applied my intelligence to the text, without any other sort of outside. If I read the text as closely and as hard as I could, I could understand it and in- interact with it. Yeah. It's, an unbel- it's a very democratic idea of, of literary study and, and in many ways a very enabling one.
3: And it was also a kind of liberation from, not only from a certain kind of historical study, but from a certain cult of taste. So it wasn't that you had to have exquisite taste. You had to know how to deal with with text to get your hands dirty in them and, and mess around with them and understand what their internal structures were and be clever enough to grasp the, as I say, it turns out that there are limited numbers of these moves you could make, but of ambiguities and ironies uh, in them. Uh, and it was. It was I'm, I'm very uh, – one of the failures, it seems to me, of my generation is that uh, we had this training, which, I, we, I, like every generation – Feels about its parents, I mean, we grew impatient with. But I'm enormously grateful that I had years and years of it.
6: Uh,
3: And I wasn't, I haven't been able to reproduce it except in very modest gestural form toward uh, my own students because, uh, so they didn't have that to both absorb and kick against.
1: I I actually think that Stephen may be underestimating himself in some ways here because I think one of the things that distinguishes his work from a lot of the work of other so-called new historicists is his power of reading closely and i think that that's his inheritance from the new criticism when he even though he might not he might not read closely the same objects that his that his uh, 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 that that his mentors did when he reads a When he reads a historical anecdote, or 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 applies uh, particular historical materi- uh, tensions or, or or themes to a specific text, he does it with the rigor and the excitement of the old New Critics. And it I myself actually think of it as an extension of, of, of a, a very rich extension of the methods of the New Critics. No, I I'm yes. yes. sorry. The sorry.
5: methods exactly. I mean, the goal, however, seems to be broader than yes. discovering and stopping at the level of ambiguity. Um, and that seems to me uh, something we, you know, there's a lot of intervening history, though. We've got to somehow get from right. s- the late 60s to now. And, and I think right now there's a way in which some of that attention to detail and method is very important in the face of a glut of information and trying to decide which things are worth paying attention to. I mean, I think it becomes a, a strategy that has a very different politics and surround at this moment than what you've been describing so far. Yes. So, But I think the intervention that you made, we somehow have to yes, get me, into let's, the let's picture. <laughs> so I, I, I
3: want to just raise, I mean, just to put on the table one other thing that otherwise would be lost, it's not important, but I'll say it anyway, which is that I had a huge dose at Cambridge in between the two Yale, my two Yale things of something else, and I mentioned the Raymond Williams thing, but something else that was very prominent at Cambridge that was curiously not part of the new criticism at Yale, but was turned out to be Important to mean, though, it's now not—partly because of the computer is no longer important. But through I.A. Richards, there was this obsessive British dating game. Not the dating game in our sense of it. But uh, I spent an innumerable number of hours for two years at Cambridge being given pieces of paper that had unidentified texts mm-hmm. on them and being asked to, to say— as close as I could when this text was written. It looks like 1763 to me. <laughs> uh, and the people who are good at it, and F.R. Levis, for example, although that wasn't his main suit, was unbelievably good at it, could get within, I mean, eerily, eerily within six months of when the damn thing was written. And I, one could be certain that he hadn't seen it before. You could find things that you could be sure he hadn't read before. I mean, like anything else, like any muscle that you can develop, you can develop that muscle like uh, East German athletes in the old days to crazy degrees. And though it seemed to me unbelievably stupid at the time (laughs) to do it, I just couldn't believe I was caught in this crazy thing, it turned out Mm -hmm. actually to be very much part of my sense of how you locate things that were written contingently at that moment and not 50 years later or even 10 years later, how, what, what it meant to pick up the weird signals from the inside of, of how things are tied to the particular historical and sociological moment. And when I read, not so many years afterwards, that book that sometimes attributed to Vlossinov and sometimes to Bakhtin on the Marxism and Language, or I'm getting the title slightly jumbled, uh, Marxism and the History of Language or the History of Marxism and the Study of Language. I can't remember the title. The, the game at that te- in that text which is a kind of slightly secretly anti-Stalinist text written in a bad moment was to say that the information that you really the historical information that you need for a dialectical interpretation properly historical dialectical interpretation of, of art in its place you can get from inside the work already. You don't need actually to wheel up the, uh, the appropriate class analysis because it's already in the work. And that idea that you could get it by looking hard in the work, but you weren't actually leaving history behind, but finding it at the very inside yes. of the work, was something, as I say, I had unexpectedly a kind of uh, a mega dose of for, for two often quite uh, unhappy or years of annoyance at, 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 uh, at Cambridge when I was just dutifully going through this. But anyway...
1: It's, uh, some of us have adapted that principle to visual text. And when I teach film and television, I sometimes test my students in this way by showing them films, fragments of films or television programs that they've never seen and saying, on the basis of what we've learned, can you tell me when this text <coughs> was made? And it's actually, it, it, there's, a similar, there's a similar principle operating there as well.
5: Can we leap to my graduate school? Because, <laughs> because one of the things, to do the anecdote, Stephen came to uh, Columbia while I was there, and amongst other things, ran a, a seminar while self-fashioning was in press, just about to come out, gave us the Marlowe chapter. I immediately, of course, said, oh, well, it's not what I'm writing, so, and had a contentious and lovely conversation, and the generosity of that conversation was what strikes me um, as a huge change over the last... 30 years perhaps in what the professorial relationship to students I hope is that is instead of the great mentor who you know stands up and models wisdom in a closed set that there's a dialogue and an openness that you brought maybe it was all those years at Berkeley that allowed you to you know not take umbrage but you still do this I've watched you just avoid the whole you know either thank you for adopting my method or attack me and let's mix it up. You're not actually very interested in that. There's a kind of listening to the student voices that seems very different to me from the earlier model, which was one of Acolyte. Um, And I hope that's a model that the professoriate has more generally um, adopted. But that was in around 1980, 81, (laughs) and it struck me as unusual at that moment, certainly, the other thing that I never wanted
3: to—I mean, hmm. I always never wanted to be one of the fathers. I always wanted to be one of the sons. <laughs> uh, and so, if you yep. want to avoid being one of the fathers, uh, if you're frightened of that, especially because you wanted to kill your own father, yeah. uh, as it were—I mean, I always wanted to kill my doctor mm-hmm. father—then, yeah. uh, then you're better off finding another strategy than than becoming one yourself. So, I have a slightly less generous account of why probably I don't like. I, I, um, the, the, I, I've never wanted to be in killed that position. or killed. Yeah. <laughs>
5: yeah. Uh. Fair enough. I <laughs> mean, I didn't actually care at that moment about what your motives were. <laughs> I cared that the room was actually talking to one another, and that was not always true. Um, at that <laughs> moment, still, I think some people in the room would agree with that, who were, who were there um, late 70s, early 80s. One of the reasons, though, people were also not always getting along was that something had happened in the interval between what you're describing and that moment, which was high theory. Hartman became perceived as part of the Gang of Four, etc., at Yale. And then also cultural materialism in England. Mm. And the way in which your work came in, at least from my perspective, is a little different than just in some seamless step from the new historicism, um, excuse me, from, from uh, this new criticism and old historicism moment, it was, in a sense, a friendlier face of incorporating European and English, now you're making explicit English thought, into the American canon at a, at a moment of, of real culture wars, mm, um, where you could get killed for saying the wrong thing in the wrong
3: It came from class. different, yeah, probably partly because it came from different roots. Two things that I, I read two things in the early 1970s, several different things in, this, in the 1970s and then into the 80s that made a huge difference to me. One was to read Althusser at a, a certain key moment in the 70s. In so other was it was coming not from phenomenology and uh, and then ultimately from deconstruction, but mm-hmm. from that side of the other side of things. And then I read that cunning book by Bourdieu called Outline of a Theory of Practice. And that also was a huge hugely important book for understanding how one could... In, how one could think differently about culture and society without—I thought, thought of deconstruction. I thought of what Jeffrey Hartman was doing, maybe wrongly, as basically a very brilliant continuation of the most hermetic side of New Criticism—a uh, way of continuing to do it without simply repeating the same moves. And I admired it for that. But I, since I was in—I was in a more at that point particularly in a more, however much I wanted to take over, I also wanted. To to push away from the things that, that I had been taught to do. Bourdieu and, and earlier Althusser were much more liberating mm-hmm. figures for me and yeah. ways of of uh, aligning whatever it is that I had learned with what I thought was going on at uh, in, in, uh, uh, that point in French thought.
5: And well, have sti- and have stuck around. Let's, too. Let's, not let's not
1: let our conversation become yeah. too hermetic for people who, yeah. for whom these names mean nothing. Yeah. But w- one way in, I mean, I think I, I think it's a rich conversation, though. Steve, one way into into the uh, a somewhat more systematic account of the new historicism would be to ask you a personal question. Uh, at the beginning of of uh, the new edition to Self Fashioning, you say that this is the book in which I found my voice. And maybe you could begin to talk about what the new criticism, what the new historicism was for you by talking about what you meant when you said, this was the first book in which I found my authentic, my own voice.
3: I mean, partly I really do mean at the level of uh, of writing, of style, of what it means to feel that you're not um, uh, an apprentice any longer. I mean, so it's not, I don't mean anything very fancy about that. I mean, that that I had written um, two books before then, one as an undergraduate and then one as a graduate student, that were both projects done under teachers.
2: It's a uh, mark
1: of what a prodigy he was, that no, his senior it, essay they had at some Yale fancy, was no, published No, 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 no,
3: They had some little deal no, at Yale too, where they it's published not being things. Much, but, I mean, uh, it's a very weird thing. Uh, but anyway. It's they, actually
1: they, a good book. It's called Six Modern Satirists.
3: Uh, You've doubled it. It was three. Oh, uh, <laughs> well, it was so boring. <laughs> <laughs> <Two> bucks, <he's> <laughs> <saying>. <laughs> anyway, the point was that those who were they uh, Huxley, Juan, Orwell. Those projects were written under, uh, you know, in in that relationship that one has, and then there's a certain moment at which you 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 no longer have that both support system, but also the things holding you down. You have to figure out what you sound like yourself uh, when you're not worrying about what uh, your advisor thinks. So that's partly I just mean that. Because there was a lot of continuity between the, my dissertation, which was on Raleigh, uh, the Raleigh book, and Renaissance Self-Fashioning, but it was a way of trying to think, how could I think out of this? It's actually ironic in relation to my career, such as it is, because I was trying to think of how you could think out of the model of an individual life. The Raleigh mm-hmm. book was very much about an individual life, this weird character, Sir so Walter Raleigh, and bizarre uh, a fact that he was simultaneously a kind of soldier or explorer, or scoundrel, uh, courtier, and at the same time a very interesting minor poet and interesting writer. So uh, then I try to think: what, it, what would it mean not to think so conventionally about a life? What would it mean to think about, a, 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 but th- to think about what lives are in a in a larger social or anthropological system? How lives are made anthropologically? As a category, what it means to feel you have a life or have a voice. So, and that would involve thinking about what it meant for me to have a voice. This was, you know, sort of the, the time in which David Thorburn was thinking about burning his draft card, or in the wake of this, and I was thinking. I mean, we were, I mean, we were all trying to rethink what it meant to have the subjectivities and identities that we had. So, what, the liberation, insofar as there was one, is in addition to a, just feeling that I was able to write, uh, was the liberation of trying to think. In a life passionately, about my life and their lives, but at the same time anthropologically or sociologically about a big phenomenon, what happens when you try to think of how a whole culture is putting together the available voices or roles that it could have. And the trick was not to th- throw one away and keep the other one, not to have the big sociological category without the passionate individual life, but also not to be stuck within the biographical model of an individual life
5: which put it into the structure of a sort of uh, beautiful dialectic where you do, you know, one side, other side synthesis, yes. one side, other side synthesis in that book. Um, and that gets into the question of how you use history to tell a story. I mean, now you're talking about all the basic parts, it seems to me, that we circulate in your different works. Um, it, I don't think it's actually more arcane in some ways than talking about out for a minute to say... At the moment that came out, what it did was put the individual back in a system. People had gone so far to the side of talking in a sort of abstracted high theory mode, some people, um, and some others were using English cultural materialist other models of social analysis. And what you were doing was taking, as you've just Pointed out some knowledge of those vocabularies, but putting it back with Tyndall, put it back and anchor it very, uh, quite vividly and in a style we understand in America with individual lives.
3: Yes. I mean, it was, it was a way of trying to think about, I mean, it was a t- as the Tyndall chapter was full of uh, Walter Benjamin, other chapters were full of other things that were flooding in. It was a great moment. I mean, that unbelievable moment all through the late. 70s, as as we were getting barraged with with lots of exciting things. But the question was, how could we situate ourselves interestingly? How could we situate ourselves without – it was one thing to wear a dirty raincoat and smoke galois. Uh, the question was, how to sound like you're true to who you are, an, uh, your own education and your sense of what humans are at the same time use this stuff.
5: And that's where the history and who you are comes into play, I guess, and – and All along, it seems, since that, and it comes up even in Will in the World, there's a real sense of the chapter as overtly a unit of rhetoric, a unit of organizing history to bring out some particular angle. Um, It's not just, you know, let me follow history in the sort of dead version that we started with of an old contextual history. Um, It's not like every moment in the life of Shakespeare is equally interesting, and so we have to chart every moment. It's you sort of grab, and this goes back to the anecdote point, you grab something that for you resonates and tells a vivid story. Which immediately, of course, opens up the question, why not this one instead? Yes. Why, how do you make those selections? It's partly a
3: practical matter. When I, when I, uh, wrote, when I uh, wrote my Raleigh, I turned, turned my Raleigh uh, dissertation into a book in the first year that I was an assistant professor. Uh, I um, sent it. I shouldn't admit this. This is a kind of thing one hides, but I'm, I'm too old to worry about it any longer. I sent it uh, to uh, the manuscript to the Oxford University Press. Um, and they sent it, in turn, to um, a, a woman named Agnes Latham, who must have been like 112 years old at the time, who was the, the doyenne of Raleigh studies, who had uh, worked very nice woman? I had, had tea with her when I was in, in England. When I was interested in Raleigh, and they, uh, she, um, had worked all her life and had produced one exceedingly modest article, and then a uh, edition of a very good edition of Raleigh's poems, and she read the book and she wrote a report for Oxford Press saying that in perhaps after a seasoning of 20 or 25 years, Greenblatt would know enough about Raleigh to write a, a, a book about Raleigh. I mean, and so he, she just was urging me to attack the book, but she said it was way, way too early. I mean, I had to go back. So A, she understood nothing about uh, the structure of American Academy. I'd be a dead man uh, trying to hold on to this book for 25 years. But B, also that vision of, of how to do this work to immerse yourself for 25 years so you know absolutely every detail, if you, at least that you can, about someone's life uh, seemed to me uh, a, um, a form of intellectual deadening. Or rather, my vision of it was precisely, uh, uh, well, there was someone else who, from back in the day, there was a man who wrote a brilliant dissertation, by all accounts, uh, and then was a Yale assistant professor on Hardy, I believe, and yeah. he just couldn't finish the damn thing because he kept worrying he might learn something else about Hardy. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, uh, I mean, he was a later, very brilliant fellow, fantastically I mean, brilliant, a fantastically famous teacher, and he just kept acquiring more and more stuff about Hardy. The book has never appeared. I think he must. Be, he also must be about eighty years old now. But the that anyway that wasn't what was going to happen, and so partly just practically you have to decide where the cut is at what point you're going, to, you're, you're going to decide you know enough, that you're going to say what you have to say. Someone else will say something different, obviously, but that working another 10 years on the project, you're probably just going to deaden it. You'll know more, but you won't actually wind up saying much more. And the gift is to try to figure out how much you need. It can't just be a lick and a promise, just an anecdote and then take off without knowing it because you sound like an idiot. Uh, but you also have to know when to stop. And that was what I tried to teach myself, and also uh, figure out how to do to to, for myself, but for my students as well, just to to be responsible, but also not to be so obsessive that or so frightened, Uh, because there's always more to learn. So you just you 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 have to trust have to develop instincts and then trust them, that you, you have enough. And of course, you, you never do, and you all also are, uh, you accept the fact that it's not going to be perfect. Uh, but I, what I did, as Diana says, is all, maybe more than I should, to shape this around the idea that one had, had to have a story to tell. Um, even in academic work, that it, where, where we're slightly phobic about stories. That we actually had, you had to have some way in which you shaped this as an experience for yourself and for your readers.
1: Steve, I'd like to. Uh, we we have about ten minutes left for mm. our conversation before we open it up, and I, I have some things in reserve if, in the unlikelihood that there, there uh, things flag. But I thought it might be useful if you talked a little bit about uh, and helpful because this this <laughs> has been very exciting, but maybe more general than I had expected. If you if we picked up a few key problems or terms from the <laughs> field that now is called new historicism, had you talk a bit about them. One thing that's implied in what you've been saying has to do with the uh, problem of human agency, with the question which recurs in your work and is obviously at the center of, self, of the idea of self-fashioning, of uh, how much an individual controls her life and how much the. Social and cultural pressures, which uh, shape the person, are are uh, 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 the operative point. And it it seems to me this is a subject you come back to again and again in different ways. I thought maybe you could talk a bit about that as a as a kind of problem, as a as something that's problematic and also central in your work.
3: Yes, it is problematic and central. I don't think I have a a. and you've just said you don't want it to be too general anyway. I mean, I don't think I have a general formula for it, as there couldn't be in the nature of things. It's like fate and free will. Isn't the general formulas, the, big, the, the, the more general they are, the gassier they are. Uh, but it is... Look, uh, I'm thinking about this because because um, next month... Uh, Sari Nusebe is coming to be the Tanner Lecturer. The Palestinian is coming to be the Tanner Lecturer at, at uh, Harvard. And uh, Back at the time of the, of the first Intifada, um, I was in Israel to give a lecture. And I was staying at a place called Mishkenot Shananim, which is a fantastically beautiful uh, place built in the 19th century by money funds from Moses Montefiore and at the foot of Mount Zion. Um, and the conference was going on. It was a very nice... Wonderful conference uh, uh, with Wolfgang Ezer and Stanley Cabell, lots of terrific people. And um, on Friday night, I I've already told you, I'm Jew- I was brought up in a rather serious Jew- uh, Jewish way. On Friday night, someone invited me to uh, have Friday night dinner at the house at their house, which was in the Cardo, that area of Jerusalem called the Cardo, which is an old quarter, it had been a Jewish quarter, then an Arab quarter, now a Jewish quarter again. Uh, they had a, a, in the old city, and we sat up on the roof uh, under the stars, after, and sang the Hebrew grace after meals, which I had sung in my life. Uh, I want to say, by the way, that I regard religion as total flapdoodle; uh, that that I don't believe a word of it. So, but I grew up in this in this world, and I don't think of myself as having much of a spiritual life. Uh, but. We were singing the Hebrew Grace After Meals and we came to the part of the Hebrew Grace After Meals in which you say, When you sing, will you say about Jerusalem. And my eyes filled up with tears, completely involuntarily. Uh, I mean, So I had powerful somatic reaction to the words that I had said as a child that were part of a very ancient tradition of saying the words over and over again about Jerusalem, about being in Jerusalem. And here I was in Jerusalem in the old city under the stars singing this thing. And it was uncontrollable. Like like an erection at the beach, uh, that that no, no just a somatic experience with no uh, that that comes from something else, not about agency at all, about unagency, uh, about what you carry with you in the words that you recite as a, as a child that come from somebody else that you don't believe in. I was already way post belief uh, at this point, but that that are. Uh, nonetheless, are producing this effect. So that's the anti-agency part of this. And the agency part of it is you then think, Christ, what is that about? Uh, What do I want to do with that? And there are lots of different things you can do with it. I mean, you can, for example, decide that you want to give up everything, move to Israel, and settle down on the West Bank in a settlement. Uh, My own response was that well, my, well, my own sense was uncertain i didn 't know what to do with it. I was amazed by it. The next day the conference, not the next day, but then the, then the Sunday, the conference began again and all that, that Saturday afternoon before and then all during the conference, there were low level explosions and sounds of helicopters going overhead and I thought i can 't stand this i not i mean I, I, I don 't know what 's going on here. I mean I knew what I, mean, I knew what was going on from the newspaper. So I called a friend of mine who was a left-wing, crazy left-wing Jewish Talmudist. Uh, And I said, I've I've got to get out of this situation I'm in. What what should I do? I described the situation. He said, do you want to meet with the PLO? And I said, sure. So we went to to Nablus and we met with a left-wing faction of the PLO. Uh, Now The point is not – I mean, the the meeting was interesting. But the point is, that is agency. You can do all kinds of things you can do. With, with, the, with the involuntary experiences that you have. You can decide that, you, I mean, and it's not that I, this was mine because this is where I, partly my trying to think through what the situation, who I am and what historical situation I'm in and what do I want to do with it. It's certainly not, I could, one could also track back the things that made me want to meet with the PLO rather than move to, to join Gushman and move to the settlements. But... Some of it felt like it was completely involuntary, and some of it felt like it was in my control, or at least something I could think about. I wasn't simply the the, the you know uh, something being swung around on a on a string, and that's all I've been interested in all my life, in the in, in that in the in the forms of literature that I'm interested in, but also in the social experiences. You see, what, that I'm one I in.
1: think you know I think one secret of of Greenblatt's influence on other literary scholars may be exactly this dividedness in him because Diana was implying this earlier, that there was one school that emerged in the, in the uh, uh, late 60s and into the 70s that essentially denied agency, that said everything is historical. There is no, the death of the author, there is no author. It's only social forces that explain the literary. And, of course, and, and, and there's another... St- I didn't
5: say that. <laughs> no,
1: no, no, I didn't mean this was your position. I no, and I, I
5: wouldn't question. actually accept that as a descri- an adequate description. Well, why don't you d- why don't you but what I would say it. is that we're talking about agency now and there are two different levels of it, and maybe this is what it gets back to with people like Althusser and others. Um, there's the notion of choice within a limited landscape of possibilities, and of course one (laughs) seizes and makes local choices, then it's the question of the effect of that and what difference it makes, and then how do we tell, say, our own story or the history of the world in a way that does some form of what we think is an adequate job of capturing what matters. That is, between the whole junk of (laughs) the world, all that information, now we're digitally glutted with it, And something we want to spend our time detailing and focusing in and telling a story about is our creating value, clearly. But there's also an obligation to whatever it out there is. And I think that's what your work and others that you're talking about are also wrestling with and come to different conclusions. But it seems to me only half of it is, does the local individual have agency within this frame? Of course they do. But what effect does their... What effect does your meeting with the PLO? Or to, to take a more fair example would be your own, I think, very right and important attempt as head of MLA to write a piece and say can we consider the place of the book, I mean, to, to get back to the title of today, of in, in this moment, in our history right now? I'm glad to
1: include it a little bit in my, our actual topic. Yeah, I
5: thought I would. Um, for scholars, what are we asking of our young now in terms of publication? You mentioned it yourself. It was liberating for you because you could get that book out there rather than spend 50 years in an archive. But what happens when we've gone to such another extreme that everybody's churning things out, not because they are ready, but because they do feel the wolf at the door? And then we have a change in the system of publication that doesn't say, we want your book. That's a moment where we have two systems that we're part of colliding. You tried to say, let's do something about it. Then the question is, what difference has that made, you know?
3: One thing that's happening in that regard is, uh, I don't know where MIT is, you're probably way ahead of uh, of Harvard in this regard. Um, But Harvard last year passed this, uh, this is not by any means a full answer to this question, but but as you may know, Harvard passed a, a, Harvard, oops, sorry, (laughs) Harvard (laughs) faculty passed a a, a vote uh, saying that faculty would be required, in effect, but you could opt out if you wanted, if you wrote a scholarly article to make it available, it, 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 if, if a universal access digital version available through Harvard, that is to say that that you had to, unless you uh, specifically request to opt out, if you publish a scholarly article, it has to be universally accessible digitally. That's a huge step. A huge step, Because I mean, it, 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 the actual immediate reason for it is to try to fight Elsevier and the other... Uh, um, gouging uh, journal publishers of, for scientific journals, uh, but as a general principle, as the idea that the work that we do should have a natural home uh, uh, digitally and with universal access, that's the beginning of the transformation uh, that uh, for which I was ultimately calling. Uh, not that we'll cease to write articles that will appear on paper or books but that that, the, the, everything implied by the technology that the older technology that we've used is in flux. And I wasn't sure when I wrote the, that article for the MLA where it was going, but what was clear to me was that the future would lie in some uh, transformation of our understanding of what it means to appear uh, on the web and how we can uh, actually use that rather than simply be... Uh, you know, the passive bystanders of this, tran- of this transformation to, uh, f- to help younger faculty, but also to make m- more broadly accessible all of our work. And for me to support this was I mean, not significant in itself, but significant because, as David said at the beginning, I'm the f- co-founder of a scholarly journal that may be harmed ultimately in the, in the short run by this, because why would you subscribe to a scholarly journal if all articles are, also, are, are available uh, on the web? And I'm not sure I know the answer, except I think it's not going to happen very quickly, both because not everything is going to be available, but also because you feel you're part of a community when you subscribe to a journal. Uh, It happens in most literary journals to be a very small community. And for that matter, the books that we're writing, for the most part, a very small community. We can actually reach much broader audiences, I think, if we make more creative use of the digital technology that we have.
1: Well, we, we've, we've barely touched on what the new historicism is, but I think it's time to let the audience uh, uh, come in with questions. There are microphones on either side. Uh, 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 Brad, do you want to have people come to the microphones or do you want to hand them out? All right. If if you raise your hand, we can. Since since there's no center aisle, that makes sense. If you you indicate that you'd like to speak, uh, the microphones will come to you. And you might. uh, It would be helpful if you identify yourself, because uh, you'll be known for to posterity in that way. Since we're recording and and uh, uh, digitizing this event, Whitney.
6: Hi. Um, I'm a second-year student in CMS, and uh, very happy to have you here. Thank you. Um, your work has been really important in my own work, and I'm writing my thesis right now, um, dealing with kind of these very issues of how to um, how to historicize uh, how, how to historicize media objects. Um, but I was really interested in one thing you said early on about um, how you see new historicism as part in finding history in the work. Um, I'm reading a work right now by Jane Newman, Pastoral Conventions, and she's kind of positioned the whole thing as a critique of New Historicism. And her critique is that it ends up bringing history back as uh, an objective field against which you can locate literary works in. And I don't know that she's fully um, fair to, to the kind of work that you and other, others who identify as New Historicists, um, the kind of work that you've been doing, but I, I was wondering if you had a response to that.
3: Yeah, I know, Jane, I haven't read this this book, at least not, I, know, I think, no pieces of it. I, look, I don't carry a, a card, obviously, in my wallet that says, you know, official New Historicist, and, uh, and there are lots of ways of doing this. I, uh, I think that, um, you know, that, that one of the, on the whole, probably salutary effects of the New Historicism that made the Old Historicism live again, <laughs> Uh, and a lot of the work that's done under the rubric of new historicism just seems to me historicism of a very interest, often very interesting kind, but that very much corresponds to the critique that you've just uh, uh, evoked. That is to say that it it does lots of very good, often very good archival work and sociological work on a particular setting, but without any sense of as you put it to begin with, Whitney, to what it is to historicize media objects, or so what it is to understand yourself in an historical relation to those objects. It has very little dialectical relation to it. It just does traditional historical work, which is great. But it it has... Uh, um, there are lots of other ways of doing it, and I, partly for reasons that uh, that David already invoked, because of my own interest in close reading and in, in, in being involved that way in the text, have never been... And also my impatience and probably my limitations as a genuine historian, I've always been eager to put that historical contextual work in some dialectical relation with both understanding who I am, understanding what my discourse is and what its historical relationship is to these texts and so forth, trying to get it into play and not simply create a stable background into which you can insert the literary text. I've never wanted to do that. And I... I respect, there are great people who do this. I respect the work, but it just happens not to be what I think is the most interesting game for me.
6: Uh, Hi, I'm Matt Lord. I'm a fourth-year English student undergraduate here at MIT. Um, My question sort of goes to fortune-telling, and I hope, perhaps draws on some of the themes like agency that's permeated our discussion. Um, If you look at the history of literary studies since the 50s and 60s and the birth of new criticism... one account um, of that history might tell it in terms of a dialectical process. This seems to be a buzzword of the evening. Uh, A dialectical process of cross-generational rebellion. You have the new critics and then the new historicists and then the new aestheticists of the 90s. I'm wondering if there's a kind of teleological endpoint or equilibrium to that process or if not, what's next in literary studies or just most generally, how do we think of progress in literary studies different, say, from progress and other fields of intellectual inquiry?
3: Well, whatever it is, it's not physics. Uh, so it definitely
6: uh, is not
3: uh, that one, that a, a, on the whole, superior way of understanding a set of things is replacing an inferior way of understanding things. I don't think anyone thinks that that is the case, that that uh, Morgan in the 18th century writing about Falstaff just didn't get it because he couldn't even figure out what the object was and so forth. It's not... It, 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 it. So I don't think there is... Uh, a, myself i don 't think there is an end point to this uh, if you if part of the question is where I think things might be going or some of the directions that things might be going, certainly for myself wonder, there are two different directions I would cite uh, one is i 'm very interested in and in, in something i 'm thinking of as mobility studies that is saying what happens what if we if we understand cultures not as essentially, in their healthiest form, rooted or autochthonous? What if we don't think that what's most important is to understand, ultimately, what, to use Pevson's term, the Englishness of English art, uh, or to imagine that things always were where they were? But what if we think that nomads, or that exchange, or that displacement, or exile, or transformation is actually the normative state of culture, that every once in a while things stabilize for a little while, and people get the impression that, that that's the healthy form but, uh, and that all the other forms are, are somehow weak or, or uh, uh, inadequate. And what follows from that? What if we actually think about, about cultures in movement? And so what I've been trying in a variety of different ways in my teaching and also to some extent in my research is to try to think through a, a new set of terms for understanding cultures in, as essentially in movement. And culture is essentially about movement ever since the Phoenicians started carrying written language. It's not a phenomenon, in other words, of the late 20th or 21st centuries, but a very, it's, it's a constitutive phenomenon of culture. What would be the terms that we use if we didn't think that it was all about being rooted in a particular place? And a lot of things for that from that fall, and I could tell you about them, but I've already taken more time than I should, but, but things you can experiment with. And that touches a second direction. I mean, actually, I will tell you about something because it puts the two things together. The second direction, I think, is a Kind of weakening of the boundary between um, between art making and criticism, uh, but not in the sense there was a slightly tiresome way. In, a moment I thought in which various people, Jeffrey Hartman Harold Bloom, were saying that they they are great artists or indistinguishable from great artists. I, I don't. I, I never really. I never. I never uh, <laughs> thought that this was true. Uh, <laughs> but I do think that in one's pedagogical practice and perhaps also interpretive practice, that getting more of a more interesting relation to the makers. Uh, The new criticism, after all, was based to some extent on absolute refusal to believe anything the makers said uh, about what they were up to. A, a, A programmatic skepticism about it and a desire not actually to know on the whole. But I think a more interesting relation to the makers, not only the makers' account of what they're up to, but a more interesting relationship to of criticism to art making and how to put the two of the things together, I think, might be fun to do and interesting. Partly because, it's, again, like most of these things, it's really driven by one's students, even though one doesn't admit it. So students want to do. They're inter- I mean, first of all, it's possible, again, thinking about digital technology, it's possible to make things in interesting ways that it was much more, uh, much more difficult to do. Certainly visual things are... remarkable things can be made now that couldn't have been made Uh, five years ago, let alone uh, 15 or 20 years ago. And we have to be in a much more interesting relationship to it, I think, than we are. So I said I would bring the things together, and I'll tell you something very, very quickly about something I've been working on, which is I'm interested, totally conventional Shakespearean that I am, I'm interested in what Shakespeare did with his sources. It's the oldest, horriest subject of Shakespeare criticism. Because as you no doubt know, he didn't like, on the whole, to make up things. Uh, he liked to rip other people off. And that's how he became famous originally. The upstart crow, beautified with the feathers. He's famous as a thief from the beginning. So this is not just a contemporary perception about him, but it is, or it's rather contemporary in terms of Shakespeare's contemporaries, that, that that's what he was up to. And so the question is, what happens when he, when he steals from other people? What does he do with the materials? So, and I've always been interested in that. It's a completely conventional subject. But I'm interested in thinking about what happens if you don't imagine that the fate of all of these objects was to fall into the Shakespeare gravitational field and end there. But as part of a a, a much more mobile... They don't end there. Yeah, they don't end there, because he actually knew that that wasn't where his profit was going to be anyway, aesthetic as well as as business. It was going to be about creating huge long-term ripple effects and transformative effects, metamorphic effects. And I'm interested in experimenting with that Uh, um, intellectually, aesthetically, uh, and in a scholarly way, too. So I've been trying to create a kind of experiment to watch what happens as these materials move from culture to culture and place to place.
5: I mean, the one thing you've, you've talked about is is digital, and I know you're doing it in your classroom now, um, oh, yeah. which is expensive to do it that way. I mean, that takes real resources, as if you've if you pointed out. But we've been doing it in Shakespeare studies with performance for yes. years, right? Absolutely. And so it's interesting to me that now is the moment when people are seeing it, I think partly because... We've had performance for years, and it's not the new thing. But digital has made people in the humanities aware again <laughs> of the need to talk to makers and to think about that relationship. I think that's
3: absolutely right. Absolutely right. <sighs>
2: um, my name's James, and uh, I uh, something you said, uh, this is kind of a question about politics and academia, and so it's a little bit mundane compared to some of the interesting themes that, that you're talking about. But your story about being in Jerusalem reminded me, kind of out of the blue, of this situation and kind of prompted me to ask about it, which was the situation a couple of years ago at Harvard where a poet had been invited, I think, by the English department, Tom Herndahl.
3: You, you don't have the name right, but. Okay.
2: Uh, what was the name?
3: I can't remember, but it wasn't Tom Herndahl. Tom Pollan.
2: Tom Pollan, excuse me. Uh, I always get that wrong. Um, not, the other isn't even a poet I don't think um, and he was uh, uh, he had written and spoken in a way that was I think angry and militant about Jewish settlers in the occupied territories he was after the invitation attacked uh, and I, the, the story was that the pr- then President Summers weighed in and there was pressure on the English department and the invitation was withdrawn and then there was uh, then there was sort of a controversy about the withdrawal of the invitation. Yes. And the response to that was that there would be an invitation six months six months later. There was sort of there was going to be an invitation subsequently extended, and then, as is often the case, I think in situations like that, the things it'll blow over, it'll all go away, and then it's sort of nothing ever happened that I'm aware of after that. And I guess I'm just interested in if you your your Take on that whole situation, and yeah.
3: I'm sure I don't have a I don't have a uh, blow by blow. I used to know more about it than I know now. I have a very quick uh, uh, forgetting mechanism, uh, and I don't think it's uh, I I don't think that I certainly don't think Larry Summers said you can't have the lecture or anything of the kind. I mean, though I think he was exercised about it. Um, Tom Pollan said things that were actually extremely foolish to say. Namely, uh, uh, he called for the killing of the West Bank settlers. All the Brooklyn-born West Bank settlers, he said. Oh, was Brooklyn-born West? They should all be shot, all of them. Well, that's actually a stupid thing to say. I mean, I say this as someone who's neither Brooklyn-born nor enthusiastic about the settlers. Uh, but that's actually uh, calling for the shooting of people. And, uh, that, it's not, and, the, and that, name, that way of characterizing them was not intelligent, um, in my view. But would that mean that he couldn't be invited as a poet to come to Harvard? No, of course not. I thought he should I thought he should come, and I thought people should give him a hard time about that. My, myself, that would have been my response to it. But the um, – I didn't – I wasn't – actually, it's interesting, forgetting that you invoke – was true in my case. I thought he had been subsequently invited, but maybe you're right that he hasn't. I don't know. Yeah, maybe possible. I thought it was, was – um, uh, the rescinding of the invitation was, uh, seemed to me a foolish act personally, but giving him a hard time seemed to me, or registering yeah. protest for what he said seemed to me appropriate without, as they say, supporting West Bank settlements, which on the whole seemed to me a very bad idea personally. Uh,
0: my name is Peter Walsh. Um, I listened uh, a couple of weeks ago to a mock, kind of a mock debate between two British classicists. And one was taking the Roman side and one was taking the side that the Greeks were the best. And about halfway through the discussion, <laughs> the Greek advocate naturally brought up Greek literature. And the Roman advocate con- countered by saying, Yes, but what we think about the Greeks is what the Romans thought. And I had never thought that, thought of that before, and I had never, been, certainly never been taught about that, even with some years of studying classics. But it occurred to me that it was probably true that, you know, the Romans were this block in between. And so my question is: Are there certain moments in scholarship that are like the security gates at airports that you can pass through, but you can't get back out? And once you have <laughs> gone through that gate. There is no way of reconstructing the, the world that you had before that moment in scholarship. You know, it's, i don 't
3: have a point of view on that it 's just yeah that's no, a fascinating a, a wonderful image and a fascinating example. Uh, I mean you're in a, in a certain sense uh, replicating the argument between Catholics and Protestants that led to a lot of bloodshed because the question was whether you ever could get back uh, there. I mean the, this is one of the great historical arguments in the West. Uh, and it, it, Catholics and Protestants still exist as it were, they're, the two <laughs> factions didn't settle it uh, I would have uh, said, I mean the question fascinates me for a reason other than the general um, I'll come back to the general question but I'm trying to write a book at the moment about Lucretius' De Reim Natura which is the way in which the West basically keeps Epicureanism alive That is, say Epicureanism which is manifestly Greek creation, in this case largely because virtually all the texts of Epicurus are lost uh, and of Democritus too and Lucippus, it survives because a Roman poet in about 50 B.C. wrote a magnificent poem that kept this thing going and one or possibly two copies survived into uh, the late Middle Ages were found. Uh, So my sense is that um, there, if, to the general question, my sense is that there's no getting back, but that you, there's also no no getting back in the pure sense, stripping it all away and just getting the thing itself. But that the dream of getting the thing itself remains enormously powerful as a as a uh, motive for, and not a stupid dream for historical work, that to say the idea that you might be getting in touch closer and closer, that, to give up the dream completely, to say all we have is, the, is what the clerks have given us in any particular subject, seems to me uh, a, um, as a depressive and disagreeable uh, position, even though I don't think you can ever actually truly get back to the thing itself. I don't know if that sounds weaselly, but it corresponds to my dream of getting some Proximity to the moment at which something extraordinary is happening without deceiving myself that I'm actually, I mean, you know, that television show you were there,
5: uh, <laughs> that
3: I'm, we're actually going to get to see that moment where they'll all be dressed in their appropriate historical clothes and nothing will have intervened.
5: We do get back to some part of that's different by having the dream because then you go outside the genres that define the past as understood, right? Yes, I mean, yes. you start doing different material history in a different way, you start reading women's writing as yeah. letters, as literature, you redefine yes. the landscape yeah. by that refusal to give up.
3: That's deeply true, and actually even, I mean, that issue, one, you get at something very important to me, Anna, which is that one of the thrills for me, all my life as an academic, has been precisely the, the sort of trouvaille, the text that I hadn't known existed that this suddenly gives me, as I say, the illusion at least mm-hmm. that I'm finally getting it. There's a diary I came across some years ago in the Hacker Society called Richard Maddox's Diary. Richard Maddox, no big deal. <laughs> Richard Maddox was a, was a college student, basically a Cambridge student, who had a connection, a distant connection to the Earl of Leicester, and wanted insane man that he was to go on one of these shipboard, one of these voyages to the New World. And he kept a diary on the ship, and he, he started it. And he realized very shortly after he was on board the ship, but too late to turn back that he just hated every sucker on the ship it Just they were all horrible. I mean, but he should have known that he'd hate them. They were horrible people, <laughs> all of them. Uh, uh, he he was a very finely educated, rather rather sophisticated guy and he's just with a bunch of horrible yahoos. <laughs> uh, and, and so he begins to write in code, because he's afraid they're also reading his diary, because he becomes quite paranoid. And then, and then he puts – he gives them Latin and Greek names, and then he starts writing – he writes for a while in Latin, and then he sw- switches to uh, – he invents a kind of code which wasn't broken until the late 20th century. They couldn't even figure it out. And it's, in fact, the breaking of, of – the reason that the diary survives – the poor bastard died off the coast of Brazil – Uh, But they brought his diary back because they couldn't figure out what was in it, and they thought, oh, the hell with it? They just brought it back, and it just survived. (laughs) And I felt that pure, delicious sense that, yes, I'm actually getting it now. I'm getting one of these voices that hasn't been mediated in 50,000 ways. But of course, it's not true. But it's truer, at least, than what it is to read Hamlet, where you really – I mean, you can't read Hamlet without – some German from the early 19th century, sort of, imagine, yeah. <laughs> or even if you don't know that that German is doing it, but that's who gives us Hamlet. And uh, uh, this guy wasn't, wasn't the product of, of German Romanticism.
4: Right Marjorie. Um, I'm Marjorie Resnick, and I want to tell you that I really like the idea of our creation of a new criticism that would deal with culture and movement because I just taught a, a book by one of your colleagues in an antique land oh, yes. by Ghosh, uh, by i trying actually. to teach students that globalization didn't start in 1961 when the phrase was coined. And one of the things I noticed when I was reading about it is that the fact that Ghosh uses materials from the Geniza in Egypt <laughs> written in the 11th and 12th century, but that he is an Indian who is an anthropologist Has studied in Cambridge and has access to this because Solomon Schechter literally stole them from the Geniza and took them to Cambridge University. Makes the reading of that book for contemporary students difficult because they keep saying, What is real? What is fiction here? These pieces of paper from the Geniza are real. Uh, Ben Juju, who lived in India and was a trader had this weird language, Judeo-Arabic, that developed in on the Malabar coast, but we don't really have a critical, as far as I could find as I was preparing the course, a voice that can deal with the new experience of scholars because we can travel more, we can travel more quickly, we have access to the kind of materials internationally that people strove a lifetime to achieve that we can get in a plane trip to Cambridge. So my point is that I don't think we have developed a critical theory or a way of dealing with this kind of pastiche book of experiences yet. And yes. I'd be interested in what you think about that.
3: I, first of all, I think Amitabh Ghosh's In an Antique Land is a magnificent book. And it's, for me, a very important touchstone precisely because it it so poetically and powerfully articulates what the problem is, including the problem of trying to get travel itself, literal travel, in your account of how cultures work. We just sort of basically erase it, and actually the digital, in this case, the digital world doesn't help because it basically conceals the fact that until, in this case, really until very, very recently, the literal travel from place to place has been a, a, a crucial element that we tend to forget about, including Questions of who controls access back to your uh, literalizing your metaphor. Who 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 are the the customs agents? What do you have to pay to get through this particular boundary? Uh, how do you conceal the object that you're carrying that you shouldn't show? I mean, so forth and so on. There's a huge amount of material of this kind that is just lost to us if we don't pay attention. Start at least start with the literal and then move to the metaphorical travel, and that's one very very big piece of it. And to try to understand what the contact zones are where, where the, the strange uh, conjunctions when Amitav Ghosh tries to explain what it is to be a Hindu to, uh, to the fellow Hindu that, that he's dealing with in, in uh, Egypt. They can't even begin to understand what he's talking about, what, what his moral universe is. And if you think about a play like King Lear, let's say, uh, uh, King Lear is a completely crazy we're so familiar with it now that it doesn't seem crazy, but a completely crazy pastiche of things. It's got, it's got a story about the uh, ancient British world, supposedly of the time of Isaiah, sewn together with uh, a story that Shakespeare has taken from, uh, from Sir Philip Sidney, from a contemporary writer, as if that were, I mean, uh, a, a, a plausible Proposition to mix these two crazy stories together. Then, mixed up with Machiavelli and, and, I mean, a whole set of very, very peculiar objects, each of which has had its own trajectory as it's moved into England and is carrying with it a set of implications through its travels, through passing through different gates. <laughs> and if we actually could see that, how it came to be, how these pieces got put together, and what it means to, to, for this playwright to have stitched them together, I think we could understand something interesting about cultures in movement rather than cultures that are, as we imagined it, rooted in a particular time and place.
6: Hi, my name is Lana, and I'm a second-year graduate student here in CMS as well. Um, this question is kind of a mirror image or bookend to so Whitney's question about objectivity and history. And so on the other end of things, new historicism in York in particular seems to have been criticized as at times as overly dependent on <coughs> extrapolation or conjecture. Um, and I'm really curious about your take on the place of imagination or the hypothetical, the what if the might as well be fictional um, as it stands in tension with trying to get a really rich full description of that historical or sociological moment um, and as it's probably not an either or thing uh, if you could describe the relationship between the hypothetical and the historical in your work and in new historicism I mean
3: I uh, want to say that that um, well, take a step back. Do you, do you know a book by Natalie Davis called Fiction in the Archives? It's actually quite a nice book about, uh, uh, about the extent to which the imagination and the making up is already implicit in the archival materials that you use. So it's not just that you're bringing um, to the archive a, a certain kind of conjectural intelligence, but the archive is just saturated with the conjectures uh, of the people... Uh, who left traces of themselves. So the first thing I'd want to do is simply resist the idea that, on the one hand, you you, get, you have the stuff, and on the other hand, you have your crazy conjectures. Uh, it's, much, it's a much more complicated relation than that, and it gets even more complicated when you're dealing with fictional materials, to begin with, which are, conge- which are full of imaginary conjectures, so that the... I have always thought that we should figure out, if we can, ways of at least... Using um, the, our imagination that we, we seem to prize in other people, that is say, in the writers we look at, we should try to figure out ways of deploying it oneself. on the other hand, I totally accept the rules of the game that we play, which is that you can 't just make it all up uh, that, that you have to indicate somehow that you're ma- making it up or playing the game of making it up so. I then not say I understand that our discourse is not... I never thought of anything that I wrote as a fiction. Um, but, I, but I've always wanted to figure out ways of, in, to varying degrees, of getting um, the, the, both the structure through storytelling and, and through certain rightly effects, and also the affects of, uh, that, are, that are reachable through the imagination to get them in play. The uh, ex- most extreme form is in that in the will in the world book, but that 's because we have so little to go on, so you know you cough and the story's over if you don 't use your imagination i mean that, that, to try to fill out the parts that that aren 't <laughs> there, but on the other hand there 's a big distinction between to take magnificent works as a in contradistinction of mine there 's a, there's a huge difference between what Joyce does in uh, Ulysses, or what uh, Anthony Burgess does in Nothing Like the Sun, and what I do, not only a difference in quality, as there is an immense dif- difference, but, but also a difference in the game being played, because Joyce and Burgess both understand that as fiction writers, they can go immediately for the thing you'd most want to do with the, with, if you're trying to extrapolate Shakespeare's life from his work, which is to write a story about sexual betrayal and jealousy since it's the obsessive subject of most of his career. But I couldn't do it in this book because I played by the rules which say that, or at least the rule I was playing by, said that there has to be at least a tiny hook of documentary evidence from which you could begin to play imaginative games. But since we have nothing about Anne Hathaway actually cheating on him, um, there, there, which is the theme of both Burgess and and the one thing that they say has to basically have happened to explain the writing of Hamlet. Um, I don't go there.
5: It does feel different to me. I mean, the moment it struck me was when in one chapter I thought Falstaff is John Shakespeare, and then, oops, no, Falstaff is green. and, (laughs) And I like them both. But they're sort of hanging there. They're hovering there. And it does seem slightly different from where you were where Natalie Zeman Davis was in fiction in the archives. They're just showing that the archive has yes. these components. It almost seems like I'm getting two good short stories, and I'm not sure how they fit together.
3: My assumption is that Shakespeare made his stuff up using as much as he could from lots of different things in his life. So I felt he didn't have to choose between his father and <laughs> Robert Greene. Why should I choose? Uh, I just assume. in fact, if I knew 50 other things like that, Mm -hmm. I would also have thrown them in. We just don't happen to have them. But I assume that he made up most of the stuff he made up Mm -hmm. using the pieces that he made up from, uh, the pieces he could draw on from lots of pieces of his life. Not that that he chose one character to be the basis of anything. Uh, Certainly not anything as spectacular as Falstaff.
5: And you do that. I mean, you go back and forth. But it seems a different texture of writing, just speaking rhetorically, where you don't feel the necessity to sort of announce in the way, let's say, traditional scholars would yeah. come in and say, by the way, you know, X, Y, Z. There's a, there's a freedom there yes. that is different. And I, I think that's what I'm hearing, too, about the movement towards a more creative, overtly creative writing sl- yes. side of it.
3: Well, and I certainly did, I mean, as I said at the very beginning, I was slightly embarrassed about the trajectory of, of the rejection of the light, individual life model in the Raleigh book. And then, the return to this here, but I just, in this case, I decided one might as well use what actually, instead of despising or thinking at middle brow, the thing that actually more than 1,500 people are interested in, namely literary biography, what can, what can we use in it that uh, could get at some of the things I've been interested in following out for 25 or 30 years, but but how is it possible to do this so that I'm, when, I'm, not, only sp- I'm not only speaking to those people who know the stuff See, already?
1: W- one of the most problematic things, according to the, some of the reviews that I read about the Shakespeare book, has to do with your treatment of uh, his mother's Catholicism, with the whole theme of Shakespeare's relation yeah. to Catholicism. I wonder if you'd say something about that. Because I mean, I, I mean, That's one of the places where you yes. do, I think, take a great imaginative leap that many scholars would quarrel with.
3: Yes. I mean, it's, and it's, of course, entirely possible that I got it wrong. Uh, there, again, there is pieces of tantalizing evidence. But first of all, the evidence is like everything, that's, especially with that particular subject where you could actually get in fantastic trouble. Uh, the evidence is uh, opaque and uh, difficult to understand. Um, so several things to say. Uh, there's a debate, as those of you who are Shakespeareans will know, that is ongoing about whether Shakespeare was a Catholic or not. And I myself am quite unsympathetic, I confess, to the idea that he was actually a, you know, serious practicing Catholic in his adult life. Though it was actually said by someone in the 17th century, he died a Papist. In any case, is what someone said in the after Shakespeare was dead. But still, 17th century counts for something. Um, so. But as I say I just think the work the work is is not pious in the way that, that Father Millward and, and uh, uh, other recent defenders of this hypothesis suggest. I think it's actually quite secular. But I think there's not only there's manifest evidence in the work of a lifelong grappling and an extremely creative grappling with the with Christianity broadly speaking, but then also specifically with with Catholic practices. An extremely interesting and very tolerant grappling with it, as in the, lots of the, the uh, figures of the, um, of the friars and his plays, and lot, as well as subtler uses of Catholic theology in his work, that's by no means the predictable Protestant uh, thrumping of Catholicism. So there's a very interesting, internal to the work itself, a very interesting lifelong engagement with it. And there is, as I say, a bunch of peculiar, you know, opaque evidence there's the There's the father's will if it was accurate if it actually was accurately transcribed and as authentic there's the mother's relationship to the Ardens uh, not very far away up in, in uh, near Birmingham uh, who were who definitely Catholics and, and indeed executed uh, for the same uh, there are those that peculiar f- phenomenon of the people who educated Shakespeare who wound up in who uh, who seem to have been an, unu- an unusual percentage of Catholics who wound up going to the continent in Douay. So can I prove anything? No. But I thought it was interesting to tease out a life lived in the shadow. Not John Kerry, like John Kerry wrote a book about Dunn, in which he has Dunn tormented all his life. I think this is also (laughs) not believable. But Dunn tormented all his life by his betrayal of Catholicism. Um, And I don't think Shakespeare was tormented all his life by his... By what I take to be the secular turn in his work. But I think he loved damaged institutional goods. Uh, he loved. He thought that they were fantastically good, aesthetically. And he drew upon them, I think, all his life. I think he drew upon them because he had very close relationship to them, personal relationship to them. And that, at least, was the story I tried to make here. But if he didn't, he also drew on them, whether he was had a personal relationship to them or not. Because it's all over... The fingerprints are all over his work. And I could show you... I could show you for reasons having to do with the training that I had in the 1960s, not the the interest that I have in the uh, 21st century. Right. What he's saying
1: is he can find the evidence in the text. Well,
5: he's also saying, I mean, and this seems to me really where you were saying a little bit earlier is we don't have much to build on. It it affected people around him. It affected the culture in which he lived. It is not only about feeding everything back into the individual life of Shakespeare again. And I, I guess that's what I think is too bad that people aren't talking about in this book because it seems to me far more interesting to, to go back <coughs> to our issue today of audiences and change over time and what we can capture when you're talking about the sonnets, right? And you're talking about the coterie audience where they would have gotten it. Other people who read the Shakespeare sonnets and don't necessarily get it in the time. And then us, none of us can get the coterie reading we may get something close to what the non-Coterie folks at the time got. But that gives us different audiences and engagements with those texts. But it doesn't just come back to, so what did Shakespeare say anyway? And that's where everyone keeps going with the book. And it's, to my mind, the least interesting thing you can talk about. I
3: certainly think the attempt to nail him down in a particular sodality is a a non-starter. It's just too big a figure for that and too... He's a wonderful broken field runner. You can't catch him that way anyway. Uh, though I think he has lo- he's in an interesting lifelong relationship to lots of different things going on in his culture.
1: I, w- I, I have a, a, a kind of thing I'd like you to do, Stephen. One of the most famous passages in Stephen's work is the epilogue to Renaissance self-fashioning. In a way, it kind of undermines the book, and that's part of what's interesting about it. I thought, uh, um, since there seems to be a lull here, uh, I don't see any questions. I, I was going to ask you if you would read from it, Steve. And you sure. Can, you can edit it if, if you like, but the, it isn't that long. You can read the whole thing if you want.
3: All right. Um, a few years ago, at the start of a plane flight from Baltimore to Boston, I settled down next to a middle-aged man who was staring pensively out of the window. There was no assigned seating, and I had chosen this neighbor as the least likely to disturb me, since I wanted to finish rereading Geertz's interpretation of cultures, which I was due to teach on my return to Berkeley the following week. But no sooner had I fastened my seatbelt and turned my mind to Balinese cockfighting than the man suddenly began to speak to me. He was traveling to Boston, he said, to visit his grown son who was in the hospital. A disease had, among other consequences, impaired the son's speech, so that he could only mouth words soundlessly. Still more seriously, as a result of the illness, he had lost his will to live. The father was going, he told me, to try to restore that will, but he was troubled by the thought that he would be incapable of understanding the son's attempts at speech. He had, therefore, a favor to ask me. Would I mime a few sentences so that he could practice reading my lips? Would I say soundlessly, I want to die, I want to die? Taken aback, I began to form the words, with the man staring intently at my mouth but I was incapable of finishing the sentence. Couldn't I say I want to live? Or better still, since the seatbelt sign had by this time flashed off, he might go into the bathroom, I suggested lamely, and practice on himself in front of a mirror. It's not the same, the man replied in a shaky voice, and then turned back to the window. I'm sorry, I said, and we sat in silence for the rest of the flight. Well, maybe I'll stop there. It goes on, but but, um, (laughs) but that that, uh, that, uh, was... It did happen, actually. Exactly. You might, might,
1: <laughs> you might you might go to the end. Of, uh, here, start a, start so much for I'm individual
5: here. human agency, right?
3: <laughs> um, all right, wait a second. Uh,
2: it's it's. Not, I wanted to.
3: Say, I said that that. Uh, why did I not want to do this? I partly was paranoia. I said. I was afraid he would take a knife and stab me to death. I mean, that's that, uh, partly a kind of Kafka-like feeling that if I said this, I would condemn myself to dying. Uh, but I said in a manner, be- and beyond superstition, I was aware in a manner more forceful than anything my academic research had brought home to me of the extent to which my identity and the words I utter coincide, the extent to which I want to form my own sentences or to choose for myself those moments in which I will recite, I choose for myself those moments in which I will recite someone else's. Uh, by the way, I'd say is I feel slightly uncomfortable reading this. Even my own, <laughs> uh, the, the, I feel it's about reading my own sentences. Right. Uh, to be asked, even by an isolated, needy individual, to perform lines that were not my own, that violated my sense of my own desires, was intolerable. So then, the point of this is to say that when I conceived of the book several years ago, uh, I intended to explore the way in which English writers of the 16th century created their own performances, and, and then I was going to analyze the choices they made by representing, in representing themselves and in fashioning characters. And that was where it came really out of my Raleigh book, because I saw Raleigh as doing that, the earlier Raleigh book, as doing that all his life. Um, and then, this is just an account of the world that produced Michel Foucault, basically. As my work progressed, I perceived that fashioning oneself and being fashioned by cultural institutions family, religion, state, were inseparably intertwined. In all my texts and documents, there were, so far as I could tell, no moments of pure, unfettered subjectivity. Indeed, the human subject itself began to seem remarkably unfree, the ideological product of the relations of power in a particular society. That's the mystic marriage of Althusser and Foucault.
5: (laughs) Uh, uh,
3: Whenever I focus sharply upon a moment of apparently autonomous self-fashioning, I found not an epiphany of identity freely chosen, but a cultural artifact. If there remained traces of free choice, the choice was among possibilities whose range was strictly delineated by the social and ideological system in force. The book I have written reflects these perceptions, but I trust that it also reflects, though in a manner more tentative, more ironic than I had originally intended, my initial impulse. For all of the 16th century Englishmen I have written about here do in fact cling to the human subject and to self-fashioning, even in suggesting the absorption or corruption or loss of the self? How could they do otherwise? What was, or for that matter, what is the alternative? For the Renaissance figures we have considered, understand that in our culture to abandon self-fashioning is to abandon the craving for freedom, and to let go of one's stubborn hold upon selfhood, even selfhood conceived as a fiction, is to die. As for myself, I've related this brief story of my encounter with a distraught father on the plane because I want to bear witness at the close to my overwhelming need to sustain the illusion that I am the principal maker of my own identity. That was how I ended it, and I suppose it's the case that I've never, as David's asking me to read this suggests, though this book was written more than 25 years ago, I probably haven't ever got beyond that account of the peculiar situation you're in, except I now have a way of of um, not explaining it or getting beyond it, but of understanding what its philosophical roots are, because its philosophical roots are effectively in what Lucretius thought of as the swerve. Um, That is to say, it's a material universe. If you actually could understand it, and I don't have to tell this at MIT, if you could actually understand it, if you could actually create a computer powerful enough to track all of the movements of the atoms from the beginning and from the Big Bang on, you'd see that everything was determined. Uh, That there is absolutely no free choice. Except that there was an atom that swerved. And the swerving of that atom, bouncing off other atoms, produced effects so staggeringly complex, uh, so untrackable, and the initial swerve itself is so irrational and inexplicable, even by the, the, the best materialist explanations we can come up with, that it turns out to be agency, after all. Uh, <laughs> in the, that's as Lucretius understood it. Uh, that it come, it, it not, And it doesn't simply come in late and through the back door. It comes up in the originary moment of this one thing that once happened, this inexplicable swerve. And that swerve was the thing that was most ridiculed, for centuries after Lucretius was found. The text of Lucretius was found in 1417, and there are centuries of people crapping on Lucretius for the swerve. But, of course, it's the only part of Lucretius, as the rest of it has now been abandoned, it's the only part of Lucretius that seems now, in relation to contemporary physics, kind of hip as an understanding of what actually matter is about and, and how, uh, how problematical the old Newtonian physics now looks in relation to what physicists now understand to be the movement of atoms in the material universe. So the thing that he was ridiculed for by generations of contemptuous theologians mainly, but also uh, scientists now turns out to be the thing that probably is the truest
1: thing in this account
3: of the universe, and it's what saves agency.
1: Stephen, thank you very much. Thank you, audience. (laughs)
4: Yeah.